I'm so thankful that God hasn't uh, left us on our own uh, to just kind of live our lives in this world, but that he has spoken and uh, that he still speaks through what he has spoken. We uh, turn our attention to God's word now with a sense of, uh, I hope for you, I know for me, eager anticipation uh, because uh, the Spirit of God shows, reveals the glory of the Son of God through the Word of God. And so I can't wait to see what God will do as we look together at Luke chapter 4 again today. So if you haven't, please take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 4. But uh, let me uh, start by asking you a, a question. And uh, I just want you to look at your life for a minute, honestly, if you can. And think about what your expectations are. In other words, as you uh, look at your life, here's the question. What are your hopes and dreams? What do you want? So if you could define for me what a great life looks like, what would you say? If you really wanted to put your finger on it, if only life was like this, then I would have it made. Of course, there's uh, lots of different answers that people might give for some people. If you were gonna answer that question for some people, it would be if only I had a a good job, or if only I had a nice salary, (laughs) or if only I was healthy and not sick, or if only I was married to someone who really loved me, or if only I lived in a certain house or a certain place, if only, if only. And while obviously I don't know how you would answer that, uh, what I have found so often as I listen to people's expectations, as I, as I listen to their hopes and dreams, even Christians, this is not just people outside the church, but people within the church, and sometimes even me, honestly, is that when you look at what people are longing for, uh, what we're longing for, and compare it with the expectations the Bible lays out for us as the people of God, What you find, you look at their hopes and dreams, you look at the Bible's hopes and dreams and compare them. What you find is that their hopes and dreams are not too big. They're actually too small. That's that's the problem, I think. We have a problem of too small of expectations in the church. In other words, the problem is not with us wanting too much. It's with us wanting too little. It feels kind of like sometimes talking to someone who's never experienced a great marriage as an illustration. And you ask them, what do you want out of marriage? What do you really want? What makes a great marriage? And sometimes people will describe their hopes for marriage, and this hasn't happened so much since I've been to America, but it used to happen in Africa when I would ask that. It would almost be like uh, sometimes people would respond, well, a great marriage would be if my husband doesn't beat me. or if he doesn't have three girlfriends, or if you know my wife does the dishes, that would be a really great marriage. And you're like, shoo, those are kind of low expectations. (laughs) You should hope for something bigger than that because marriage is about something bigger than that. And with life, that's the thing, With, with life, not just marriage, but with life, people are sometimes like that as well because you look at what they want out of life And it's just so small, a nice car, a a good vacation, some adventures, whatever. When the hope we find in the Bible, God's promise, what he's intending to accomplish through Jesus is much bigger than that, 
much bigger. In fact, as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, that's one thing we see him emphasizing over and over. When Mary talks about Jesus, when Zechariah talks about Jesus, when, when the angels talk about Jesus, when the old man Simeon talks about Jesus, when the old lady Anna talks about Jesus, when John the Baptist talks about Jesus, when God talks about Jesus, when the devil talks about Jesus, they talk about someone who is absolutely world-changing, history-changing. I mean, the expectations for what God is going to do through Jesus are huge. And we see just how huge when Jesus talks about Jesus in Luke chapter 4, after the temptation, Luke is introducing us to Jesus' ministry, and specifically his ministry as a preacher, if you remember. And to do that, he starts by giving us an example of the message Jesus preached in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And what we see is that when Jesus stood up to preach, he picked a passage from Isaiah and it wasn't so much a passage about what people were supposed to do for him, but instead it was a passage about what God was going to do through him. And the main image that that passage uses to describe the Messiah's work, Jesus' work, is that of deliverance or rescue or salvation. Jesus is coming into this world to save and to help us get our minds around just how big a salvation he's going to provide, Jesus uses a couple pictures to describe it in verses 18 and 19. He says it is good news to the poor. It is liberty for the captives. It is sight for the blind. It is liberty for those who are oppressed. And so what are the expectations if we picture poor people rejoicing and captives being set free and the blind suddenly being able to see and the abuse being delivered, we're beginning to get a picture of the kind of total deliverance God is planning to accomplish through Jesus. And the phrase that gets at the heart of it is in verse 19, where Jesus says, he is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which to, to make it quick is basically a picture of God hitting the reset button on the universe. He is going to absolutely reverse all of the problems we have made in this world that he created. As Christians, that is what we are expecting. Or at least that is what we should be expecting. Something huge. How huge? One pastor, I, I love this quote, he says, can you imagine a world where justice always prevails? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? A world where righteousness is the rule, where goodness dominates, where everything is fair and equitable. Can you imagine a world where there is peace, total and lasting peace? Can you imagine a world where there is joy and happiness? Can you imagine a world where health is so widespread that if someone died at 100 years of age, they would be said to die as a child? Can you imagine a world where children can play in snake pits and find the snakes friendly and the snakes will find the children friendly? Can you imagine a world where lions and lambs walk together with bears and cows and the whole group led by a little child? Can you imagine a world where food is so plentiful even though the globe is experiencing the greatest population explosion ever? Can you imagine a world that is ruled by one person, the whole world, one perfect mind, one perfect will who enacts one perfect judgment, perfect wisdom, perfect justice, a, a loving, perfect ruler? 
Can you imagine a world where all the rulers and leaders and politicians who are in charge are saints? That almost seems like too much, right? Can, can you imagine a world that is basically without rebels because they're judged instantaneously with a rod of iron? You don't have to imagine it because that's the world described in the scripture as the kingdom to come. That is the new world promised by God in the Bible and it's coming. And in fact, Jesus is saying that he is the one that God is using to accomplish it. This is big. As we open our Bibles and read about Jesus, if, if we were just reading, you know, about another teacher, that would be one thing. If we were just reading about another good person, that would be another thing. But Luke says, no, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about someone much bigger, a savior. And you can see it even in his message. It wasn't like, hey, you know what? I had to go to synagogue and, and, and work a little harder and, and be a little better. No, it was an announcement of the total deliverance that God was going to accomplish through him. And because Jesus and Jesus' message is so big, it makes sense that we ask ourselves, that we stop and, and ask ourselves, is he actually going to be able to accomplish all that? I mean, that's what he claims. But is there any indication as we look at his ministry that he can do what he says? In fact, we almost have to ask that because the problems in this world are so big. And as Christians, you know what? This is what we've got, really, in response. This is Christianity, Jesus. That's our message, Jesus. That's the solution, Jesus. I mean, obviously, the Bible has a lot of great stuff in it because, because God made the world. We read the Bible, and there's all this wisdom in there. There's lots of really helpful counsel in terms of living life and how this world works. But if that's all there was, honestly, we might as well shut the book and go home because that would be like listening to someone give good advice on how to clean a room on the Titanic as it's sinking. The reason Christianity is exciting, the reason it matters is because it's offering this solution to all the problems in the universe. And we need to know, is Jesus able to do that? How do we know he's able to do that? And we know those kinds of questions are okay to ask because Luke is basically writing to answer them. It's one thing to know the facts about Jesus and what he's supposed to do. It's another to believe, to be certain. And we want to be certain and we need to be certain. And Luke is writing to help us be certain. And that is why after showing us the claims that he's making about Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 41, he starts looking at Jesus's ministry. And it's like he's saying, okay, this is what we're saying about him. Let's look at what he actually did. And so he takes us from Nazareth. You remember Jesus's hometown where, he got, where we got to hear Jesus preach in verses 16 to 30 to Capernaum where he gives us basically a day in the life of Jesus. And instead of focusing so much on what Jesus said, he looks more closely at what Jesus did and zones in on the surprising power and authority of Jesus' Jesus's word. So if you were going to summarize this section, you would say Jesus didn't just preach, he preached with power 
and authority. Verses 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And that idea is important. And we know that because Luke mentions it twice. This was authoritative preaching. And this authoritative preaching is part of how he is proving that Jesus can do what, he's, what he says. His preaching backed it up. His word possessed authority. Which might sound a little vague to us at first. Like, what does he mean exactly? His word possessed authority. And how does that help us exactly gain confidence and certainty? And so Luke gives us a couple illustrations of the power and authority of Jesus' word. And the first is its power over demons. You remember from last week how Luke tells a, a story about Jesus in the synagogue preaching when a man with an unclean spirit interrupts and Jesus silences the demon and he delivers the man with a word. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And that's important. Uh, that's important because whether we know it or not, demons are a major problem in this world. The devil, demons, evil spiritual forces. When you think about Jesus fixing everything like we're saying, to do that, he's got to be able to overcome the devil and demonic powers which I know uh, don't always feel very real to us. That was my concern last week. This should be really good news to, to see that Jesus' word has this kind of authority. And there are places in the world where they really would hear this as good news. But it doesn't always excite us as much because it doesn't always feel as real to us, which is funny. I, I, was, I was thinking this week because do you ever wonder why that doesn't feel as real to us? I don't want to get lost here because we want to keep moving. And maybe it does feel real to you, and that's great. But for a lot of people, that doesn't feel as real. Why? My guess is we would say, well, because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the devil or demons. But there's lots of things that feel real to you that you haven't seen, that feel like problems. People tell you that's a problem. You haven't seen it, but it feels like a problem. So for example, Amarta got cancer a few years ago and that felt like a problem. And yet, you know what? I never saw it. I never saw Marta's cancer. I believe she had cancer and it felt like a problem because somebody told me. That's the truth. And yet, you know what? We've got lots of people in the Bible and throughout history and even in the world today, I could introduce you to a lot of people who would say there are demons and I've seen the evidence. And why don't we believe them? Or at least, why doesn't that feel as real? You say, maybe because there's no evidence. But really, there's no evidence? Are you sure? Because I would think if there's evidence of anything in this world, there's evidence of an evil that is almost indescribable. I don't really buy it. No evidence. And besides, the fact is, I didn't really have much evidence of Marta's cancer. Not much. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do the tests or anything. Nobody gave me a microscope. But... I believed the people who did. And you know what? It was easy for me to believe the people who did. It felt real. Why? Do you see what I'm saying? Why? It's not quite as simple as people try to make it sound. Like, oh, I believe because of the evidence. But no, there's, the reality is there's evidence you trust 
and there's evidence that you don't. Why? I guess someone nowadays would say science, and they think by saying that, that they're saying science is something different than faith. But the difference between science and faith is not that one needs belief and the other doesn't. The way that we know anything, even science, involves believing someone else's testimony. God's kind of built that into how we function as, as humans. And so even if you say, I only believe it if I experienced it, you, in reality, are believing the testimony of your own senses, of your own mind, of your own reason. You have to trust what your own senses are telling you. And why do you trust them? How do you know they're reliable? And this is kind of the big lie when it comes to science. Science is based on faith in someone's testimony as well. All, science, all scientists come to science having fundamental philosophical views about knowledge and reality. And yet, why do we trust their testimony so quickly? That's the question. And the point is that it's not just because of the evidence. It's because we have been trained by our culture in a certain way of looking at the world. And so we almost instinctively take a certain kind of evidence more seriously than we do others. It feels more real. But of course, we're Christians. And so we start by taking God at his word. And so we believe God is ultimately the one who is most trustworthy, who can explain things best, we take his testimony first. And when God talks about the problems in the world today, he talks about the devil and talks about demonic forces. And so if we're thinking biblically, if we understand the problems in this world correctly, demons and the devil are a big problem. And so if we're going to expect Jesus to provide the total kind of deliverance that the Bible talks about, we have to know if he's going to be able to overcome the devil. Does he have this kind of power and authority? And the first story in Capernaum gives us hope that he can. Jesus's preaching ministry had power. His words possessed authority, authority over demons. He rebukes the demon and the demon listens. But the thing is, while demons are a, a a big problem in this world, they're obviously not the only problem. In other words, we need deliverance from more than just demons. For example, there's things like death and sickness and disease. And I know that those things seem so normal, so part of our life in this world right now that it's easy for us to kind of get used to them. There's so much death and disease all around us that we kind of come to the point where we just expect it. We live with it until we're brought face to face with it. And then we grieve over it and hate it. And we hate it like that because it's not normal. We should absolutely never get used to sickness and death. It's not how God designed this world to be, actually. It's a result of sin, death, and disease. All that is a result of sin, not necessarily the sin of the individual person who is sick, obviously. Jesus made that clear. But it is a result of the fact that Adam sinned and broke the world. And so now we're living in this world with all these problems. And one of the big hopes of the gospel is that Jesus is going to deal with the problems we experience in the physical realm. And you know what? We should expect that. We shouldn't settle because that's part of the claims wrapped up in salvation. Jesus is coming to save from demons and Jesus is coming to save from sickness and death. Now, real quick, let me take a, a minute and explain what I mean, because there's a wrong way to say that. 
and it was real popular where I was the last few years. I'm not sure if it's as popular here, but it's called the Health and Wealth Gospel. And it was big in Africa. So sometimes when people talked about Jesus and salvation and sickness, they would say it means that Jesus came to defeat all sickness now, like right now. And so I would ask people, what do you love about Jesus? And they would say, he's my miracle healer. And then I would ask them again, what do you love about Jesus? And they would sometimes say, again, he's my miracle healer. And sometimes they would think that means that Christians should never get sick. And the only reason you would get sick or why you would not get healed from a sickness is because you don't have faith. But that's not what we mean because that's, that's not true. Not because God couldn't do that, but because that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no promise in the New Testament that during this life, Christians who believe will never get sick. In fact, there are examples of the opposite. Godly Christians who did believe and got sick, like Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy, um, others. And, and yet here's the thing. While we absolutely reject the idea that the salvation Jesus brings means we won't ever get sick if we have enough faith, hear me now, that doesn't mean that we believe that the salvation Jesus brings has nothing to do with our bodies. Because it does. It absolutely does. It totally does. In fact, the reality is that the gospel wouldn't be a whole lot of hope if it was just, you know, you believe it and then you die. Our bodies need saving. And really, even if we died and then lived and died again and it kept going like that, it wouldn't be much of a salvation. We need death to be defeated permanently, once and for all, and sickness as well. And so we're asking, is this Jesus, powerful enough to do that. Because that's what the Old Testament promised. If you look at the Old Testament, you see the Bible promises a time in human history when health will be dramatically improved. And that's the millennial kingdom, which is a whole other topic, if you don't know what I'm talking about. But Old, prof Old Testament prophets like Isaiah talk about a time on this earth where Isaiah 35 the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, and lifespans will be increased, Isaiah 65. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. And then ultimately, of course, the Bible promises a time in the future future when all death will be defeated forever. This is the new heavens and the new earth where death will be swallowed up forever. Isaiah 25, verse 8. And as we look at Jesus, we're asking, is this carpenter from Nazareth really able to accomplish all that? Making a, a world where there's no more sickness, no more death. And, and how can we be sure? Because we've seen his power over a demon, which is great, but is Jesus going to be able to provide the kind of salvation that deals with the problems that sin have caused in the physical realm as well? Salvation from sickness and death. And, and again, listen, because I want to be clear. When I'm asking that question, I'm not just asking, can Jesus heal you of the cold you have today? Because that's a different question. I'm actually talking about something bigger, something that requires Jesus coming back. I'm not as interested in a salvation that doesn't require Jesus coming back, which is the salvation a lot of people are talking about when they talk about health. It's all about the now. Can Jesus heal me of this? Can Jesus heal me of that? 
And if you're, you're sick, you can understand asking those kinds of questions for sure. But ultimately, that kind of healing right now isn't big enough. It's, it's great to be healed, but then you get sick again. It's great to be raised from the dead, but, you know, I don't see Lazarus sitting here. He died. And so we need a, a salvation that deals with our problems in a more permanent way than that. And ultimately, the salvation Jesus says he's going to bring is so big that it involves overcoming not just some sickness and death for a little while temporarily, but forever. And so we're talking about a world without any of these physical problems that we have now. Not, not just less of them, none of them. We're talking about an entire world like the Garden of Eden, but better. And so we need to know, how can we be sure that Jesus has that kind of power? Not just to heal me of the cold I have today, but to get rid of sickness and death altogether, forever. Which is why Luke gives us a second glimpse of the power of Jesus' word. We saw, first, it's, it's power over demons. Now, second, this time, it's power over disease and decay. Verse 38. This is a glimpse. That's, that's why it's here, a picture of what Jesus can do. Luke says... And he arose and left the synagogue. Apparently, after Jesus was uh, finished teaching and casting out the demon, the people were just shocked. And they were almost, I'm sure, clawing on him for more, pleading with him. But at, at some point, Jesus had to rest. He was a human. He had to eat. And probably because uh, early on in his ministry, before the part Luke tells us about, uh, when he was down in Judea, he had developed a friendship with a couple of John the Baptist's uh, disciples, two brothers, actually named Simon and uh, Andrew. And so he went to their home after teaching in the synagogue. Uh, Luke says he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And it was Andrew's house as well. Mark tells us that. But these two brothers were fishermen, Simon and Andrew. And we're going to learn more about them uh, as we continue to read through the Gospel of Luke. But they lived here in Capernaum, which isn't surprising because it was right by the Sea of Galilee. Technically, uh, Simon was from a town called Bethsaida, which was about six miles from Capernaum. Uh, but at some point, probably for the sake of his business, he had moved to uh, Capernaum. Uh, even maybe that's where his wife was from, because uh, obviously Simon was married. Uh, as Luke tells us, it was his uh, mother-in-law who was ill. And I'm not going to tell you too much about Simon, because that's not the point of this story. And we're going to meet him at the beginning of chapter 5. But what I can say is that Simon's the one Jesus came to call Peter. And he's not a, a full-blown disciple yet, and he's not even an apostle at this point. But he does have an interest in, in Jesus. He does see the significance of Jesus, and he's married. And it's actually because he's married here that he's especially eager to have Jesus come to his home because his wife's mother has become seriously sick, uh, Luke tells us. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. He doesn't get more specific than, than that in terms of the uh, sickness she had, but apparently it was fairly serious, and uh, the other gospel writers don't help either. They just say fever. Luke's the most specific. He uses a word that was an ancient medical term for a high-grade fever, uh, probably included something called dysentery. And so Simon and I'm sure his wife, uh, they may have had children. Tradition says they had children at some point. His brother Mark uh, or his brother Andrew, Mark says that Andrew was here, and James and John were here as well. They were all there, and they were all pretty concerned. And I'm sure because Jesus had been in Capernaum and healed someone previously, and, and most of the men, at least, had been down at the synagogue when Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And so when they brought Jesus to their house, they knew what they had to do, which was to make a request of Jesus for their mother-in-law, and Luke tells us they did. They appealed to him on her behalf. And I don't think they had to make a, a lengthy appeal beg or anything because Jesus is compassionate 
And even Mark, as he tells this story, he adds a, a detail that Jesus came and took her by the hand, which I think illustrates that Jesus wasn't some hard person. They weren't pleading with him to do something he didn't want to do. He felt with people and felt for people. And so it's no surprise that when Simon and the others ask him to help their mother, Jesus does. But it is a little surprising, maybe, uh, the way Luke puts it. Because he says, verse 39, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it's the word rebuked that should sound a little surprising as you read that, because that's usually the kind of word that you would use when you're talking to persons. Uh, Jesus, back in verse 35, rebuked the demon, and that makes sense. And down in verse 41, we're going to find him rebuking demons again. And we understand that because we normally rebuke individuals, uh, not things. And yet Jesus here rebukes the fever. And I think probably the the reason Luke puts it like that is because he's highlighting the power of Jesus' word. Because this is what you would call a miracle. It's not, you know, scientifically explainable. There's, there's no medicine here. All there is, and Luke wants you to see that all there is, is Jesus' word. And so this isn't even an answer to prayer, actually, if you think about it, where someone prays and God answers that prayer, which is wonderful, and we, we love that. But this is different. This is something different. This is Jesus rebuking the fever, and the fever leaving the woman immediately. And the emphasis is on the fact that it's Jesus' word that healed her, nothing else. And, and the healing is complete, it is instantaneous, and we know that because the fever left her, and Luke tells us immediately she rose and began to serve them, which is part of the miracle, obviously, because it, it usually takes a while after you've been sick and you're starting to get healthy to recover you normally get better gradually, but that's not what's happening here. And this is really one of the characteristics of the kinds of healings we're going to see Jesus perform over and over. You, you study the Gospels, and you see that when Jesus healed people, it was instant, it was total, it was complete. And we, we kind of have to get those characteristics into our heads because there are people out there who claim to heal and even claim to do it in Jesus' name, and yet so often the kinds of healings they are supposedly doing are different than what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. For example, for, for one thing, most of the time when we see Jesus healing, we see him doing it with just a word or a touch. Like here, as we said, he just rebukes the fever. And there were other times when he didn't even need to be there to heal someone. I think of the centurion's servant back in Matthew 8. Jesus spoke from a distance. He didn't even see the man. He only said, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at the moment he said it. So it's not like these healings were hard for Jesus to accomplish. There wasn't such a thing as a gradual healing. All the people in the Bible who were healed were completely healed. I remember hearing about someone who was uh, sick and he said, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And he actually walked with a limp. And it was obvious to everybody else his body was deteriorating and he was not getting better. And so he would always add, yeah, I'm healed, but my body doesn't know it yet. But that's not the kind of physical healing we see in the New Testament, unless we're talking about the resurrection body. It's almost always immediate, like here with Peter's mother-in-law. There's no, like the fever sort of goes away. She has to recover for a week. She goes from being sick with the fever here instead. Uh, laid out to having all of her energy back and ready to serve Jesus in an instant. There are only a couple times I can think of where the healings seem gradual. Can you think of them? Um, the blind man who Jesus lays his hands on and then he says he sees men like trees walking. 
And so Jesus lays his hands on him again and he sees things clearly. But if you look at that story and its context, it's definitely not because Jesus was struggling to heal him. <laughs> Instead, it's because he was making a point. It was more of two miracles than a gradual healing, actually. When Jesus healed people, he was always successful. There was never a time when he was unable to heal someone, when someone was too sick for him to help. In fact, he even raised people from the dead. Reading the Gospels, it seems like Jesus pretty much healed anyone. Most of the time, we don't have any idea whether they're believers or not. I think a lot of times they weren't. Later in Luke 17, there are 10 lepers Jesus heals, and only one of them comes back to thank Jesus and demonstrate any sort of saving faith. And here in Luke 4, in the second more general description of Jesus' healing ministry that we find in verses 40 and 41, we read basically the whole city of Capernaum came out to Jesus. That's how Mark puts it. The whole city was at their door, and Jesus later condemns Capernaum. So there's no way all those people had faith. They didn't have faith. They weren't followers of Jesus, many of them. In fact, you know, we can go further given the fact that some people were dead when Jesus healed them. It would have been pretty hard for a dead person to demonstrate faith. It was definitely not that their faith healed them. They were dead. It was Jesus' word. When Jesus healed, it was real sicknesses he was healing. He didn't simply heal people who were worried and had a stomachache or a headache. Instead, it was people who were paralyzed. And everyone knew they were paralyzed, and he made them able to walk. It was people who were blind and had been blind their entire lives, and Jesus enabled them to see. It was people who had leprosy, and you could see the effects of leprosy on their bodies. Everyone knew they were outcasts because of it. Jesus' healings were undeniable. It's interesting, actually, because there were lots of things people questioned about Jesus, but they never questioned whether his healings were real. And don't think it's because they were so naive either. Don't be that proud. If the religious leadership could have questioned Jesus' miracles, believe me, they would have. And they, they couldn't. He healed too many people to count, sometimes publicly, sometimes in a semi-private setting like here with Simon's mother-in-law, but always free of financial charge. You know, he didn't sell any souvenirs or take offerings at the end. He didn't play music to whip up the crowd or try to manipulate their emotions. And ultimately, his healings functioned as a sign or a testimony of who he was and what he came to do. And this is the important part. Listen now, because you can't just look at Jesus doing a miracle. You first have to ask, why did Jesus do that miracle? In other words, why is it here? Why is Luke telling me? Because there actually is a reason healing was an important part of Jesus's ministry. And it's because the healings say something about Jesus. So the stories Luke tells about Jesus healing people are meant to prove something. They're meant to prove that Jesus has the power to change the world forever, to end the old world and to bring the new one. And you know what? That's a big claim, like we keep saying, which may be why Luke tells a lot of these stories. We're just at the beginning in Luke 4, and as we keep going, we're going to see a lot more healing going on. In fact, someone has said that Jesus' ministry was basically a healing explosion that resulted in essentially the emptying out of hospitals where he was. And, and what happens in verse 40, Luke 4, verse 40, is a picture of what is to come. Luke writes, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them, which was obviously very unusual. I was reading one author, and he says it like this, never in human history was there anything close to that, never. That's kind of the point. 
Even in, in the Bible, if you think back to the Old Testament, someone writes, the first healing in the Bible was recorded during the time of Abraham. There are no healings recorded in the thousands of years of history up to the flood. No healings recorded. And there were billions of people alive when the flood hit. The first healing is recorded in the time of Abraham. That's about 2200 BC. So for all the years before Abraham, there's, there are no healings. Now, from Abraham to Isaiah would be another 1,400 years, 1,500 years. During that period of time from Abraham to Isaiah, 1,500 years, let's say, there are 20 recorded healings. Five of them from the time of Job and Abraham, which would be the patriarchal time. Five in Moses' day, two in Samuel's day, eight from David to Isaiah for a total of 20. 20 healings recorded in the Bible for 1,500 years. And then from 750, Isaiah, to Christ, 750 years, guess how many healings are recorded in the Bible? Zero. There aren't any. None. This is not something that God just did willy-nilly all the time. During all that time, from Isaiah to Christ, there was sickness, there was disease, and there was death, and everybody died. But we don't know of any healings. That's why, listen, when Jesus began to heal, the crowds would say, nothing like this was ever done in Israel. We, we've never seen anything like this. Never. Luke 10, 23, turning to his disciples, Jesus had been healing. He said to them, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and didn't see them. Nobody had ever seen this. Never been done. In the Gospel of John, the, the ninth chapter, when the blind man was healed, this was absolutely incredible and remarkable. Since the beginning of time, John 9, 32, it had never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. How about that? Since the beginning of time, nobody ever heard of a blind person healed. Nobody. This idea that somehow you have all through the Bible healings and healings and healings just flooding the world, and somehow that should be the way it is today, is just not true. And it actually kind of misses the point, because the point of all these healings has to do with Jesus' claims for himself. There's a reason Jesus did healings. It's because Jesus came and he made this huge announcement about what God was going to do through him, about a total deliverance God was going to provide. And then he picked out passages in Isaiah and a concept in Isaiah about who he was claiming to be. And so the question is, how can we know he's that promised servant and that God's really going to use Jesus to do what Isaiah said? The miracles. The miracles were sign. signs. Through, through the miracles, God was demonstrating that Jesus was the servant that was promised in Isaiah, and he was giving people a taste of the kingdom he was proclaiming. The miracles were attached to his message. We don't have any record of Jesus doing miracles before he started preaching, not a record that we can count on as real. And, and the reason he didn't do miracles before he started preaching was because his miracles were attached to the announcement he was making. He was preaching the kingdom of God. And what kind of kingdom are we talking about here? We're talking about a world where sin is defeated and everything is working the way it's supposed to. And that means Jesus is going to have to destroy the devil and reverse the curse and defeat death. And how do we know he's going to be able to do that? Well, Luke says, let me tell you about his ministry. Because <laughs> he didn't just say he was going to do that. His word possessed authority, actual authority. And so everywhere we see him going, we see him defeating demonic powers and healing all sorts of sickness and disease. 
Jesus' miracles, and this is someone named Tim Keller I'm quoting, he says, they were never magic tricks designed only to impress. This is why you never see him saying something like, see that tree over there? Watch me burst it into flames. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Why? Because of what Jesus said he was coming to do. He was coming to fix what man had broken. He was coming to make things the way they were supposed to be. God didn't originally design the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus came to redeem where it went wrong and to heal the world where it's broken. And so his miracles are proof that he has power and wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. In other words, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. It's coming. And so Jesus' miracles validate his identity and his message by giving us a glimpse of what we long for. And you you know, later, probably months from now, we're going to get to Luke chapter 7. And Luke chapter 7, verse 20 is is really clear, but, but maybe you remember the story how disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Luke writes, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and and many, on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And why does Luke say that? Again, because this was proof. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And this is something Peter later on is going to confirm in Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, validated to you, proved to you, accredited to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And so look, I know I'm kind of going on and on about this. And partly it's just because even though it might not be as much of a problem here, Again, where I come from the last few years, I would meet a lot of people interested in healing. There were a lot of people, that's actually why they came to church. It's very different than America, but there's a lot of people that would come to church and I, for healing. I could even understand that for sure. Being interested in healing is not a bad desire at all. And they had a lot of hope in God for healing. And that was a good thing as well. That was actually challenging to me. We need more of that. Because we as Christians do believe in a God who can act in this world supernaturally. And so there were a lot of people asking, can God heal people? And the answer is, of course he can. 100%. There's no question about that. But the thing is, there is a question whether or not God is still raising up specific men to go out and heal people like authorized miracle workers doing what Jesus did here. And I knew people who believed that, yeah, God did, that God placed his healing power in a few anointed individuals. And they would look at Jesus in the Gospels as a major proof that this is what we should be doing. Like, that's how we should read this. Jesus healed. Pastor, you should heal me. And yet, I don't think that's how we're supposed to read these Gospel accounts. Maybe there are other passages you would want to look at, but that's not how to read these Gospel accounts. They're not given to us as patterns of how we're supposed to do ministry right now. They're an encouragement instead. And this is important. I I feel a burden about this because you know what was really sad with many of these miracle healers? 
people would tell me about, what was sad was that usually they were not pointing people to Jesus, but distracting people from Jesus. And actually, that even happens sometimes in the Gospels as well, at least with the crowds, because what often happened when Jesus did miracles in the Gospels is that people started being mostly about the miracles, the physical healings. And we're going to see that at the end of Luke chapter 4, when even back then, the physical healings weren't mostly about the physical healings. It was good that people were healed, but their healing was about something bigger. The healings were pointing people to Jesus to say, look, you can trust him. He is the king, and he is going to bring in the kingdom where there, there's not going to be any more disease or death ever. So repent, trust him, and want that kingdom. But most people honestly were like, no, forget that, even in Jesus' day. No, no, forget that because we don't really want you or your message, Jesus. We just want you to heal us now. And, you know, people haven't changed all that much, which is why there can be these guys out there who aren't doing anything near the miracles that Jesus did. And some of them uh, are doing very shady miracles, <laughs> and people are going crazy. And the reason is because when you don't have the hope, the rock-solid hope of the kingdom Jesus is bringing, if your only hope is now, then when you get sick, you're easy pickings. I need to remember that as we read the Gospels, because as we read the Gospels, we're going to read about lots and lots of amazing miracles Jesus did, and it's exciting, and certainly we can pray that Jesus will heal us and all that, but we're missing the point of these miracles if we think that's somehow supposed to be the basic pattern of our ministry now, because what it should be instead is an encouragement. I don't think it's so much a pattern. The miracles are an encouragement because while this is a beautiful world we're living in, man's sin has really broken it. And the problems we see are big, too big for us to fix. It's kind of like, you know, this pandemic, this big pandemic we just have, are going through or have gone through. It's 100 years or so after another pandemic, right? And we've got all these med medical advances and we're so thankful for them. But I bet the coronavirus pandemic was almost as deadly as the Spanish flu back in the early 1900s. We're moving forward. I know we're moving forward, but not really, you know. And that's discouraging because in our hearts of hearts, we know it's not supposed to be like this, which is part of why we hate sickness and death so much. And, you know, people try to forget how bad things are by, like, getting more money or buying a bigger house. But in the end, that's just a painkiller. That's anesthesia because it doesn't actually deal with the fundamental problem, which makes Jesus and Jesus' message so amazing because he says he came to do that. He came to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, which means he came to deal with the core problems that sin has brought into this world and to hit the reset button for the universe, which is a lot for a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth to say. And we might wonder, how can we be sure he can do this? especially when he ends up dying on a cross, which again, 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 is part of the purpose of the miracles. If you, if you look at the Bible, God is kind. Because you look at the Bible and you see in this story that God's telling, if you read it carefully, it's like there are certain stages or acts. It's not all just this flat, straight line. There are unique moments in salvation history. There are times in salvation history where it seems like there's just like a sudden unleashing of miracle power. All of a sudden, you're like, wow, all these miracles. And then you click in and you look at that moment a little more closely where all these miracles are happening. And you know what it seems? It seems like those miracles are associated with what someone's called special revelatory initiatives. And that just means key moments where it's like salvation history turns down a new path. And so God gives new revelation to prepare people for that new direction. 
And there's no bigger moment than what he's doing with Christ and the apostles. We read the Gospels, and we're seeing pretty much the key moment in all of salvation history when everything comes together and it becomes much more clear what God is actually doing. And yet, like we keep saying, it's happening a little differently than we expected. And so it's no surprise that at that moment, God would confirm Jesus' message and then later the apostles' message with an overwhelming display of miracle-working power. And he did. He did. Luke says, you look at Jesus' life, and what do you see? You see, he didn't just preach. He preached with, with power. His word possessed authority. And what does that mean? His word defeated demons. And his word healed people and even raised the dead, which gives us hope that he really is the complete and total Savior the Bible promises, that he really is a savior you can count on, and that he's coming back to bring the complete and total salvation he promised. These miracles here are great, but they're just a glimpse. And if you look at this passage specifically, the way it's laid out, I think Luke's designed it for us to walk away knowing that. Because again, what's the question we've been asking as we look at Jesus? We've been asking, can Jesus do what he claimed? But another way to say that really would be, is Jesus really the son of God? Or is he just the son of Joseph? If you think about it, that's the driving question behind Luke chapter 4. And it's a question because, again, he's not always doing it the way we would think and because his own people reject him. But Luke says, okay, I know that. I get that. But is that really a reason to be uncertain? Because look at him. Look at him. What's he doing? He's healing and he's casting out demons. And in case we're not catching the point, it's like Luke ends by saying, listen, don't just look, listen. Because what do the demons say at the end? Verse 41, Luke writes, and also demons came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. They knew, they totally knew who Jesus was. And Jesus tells them to be quiet because he has an agenda for accomplishing his work as the son of God. And he's not going to let them mess with that. And again, I'm, I'm kind of closing this week the way I did last week as well. But it's important. The, the demons here know Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the total and complete Savior the Bible promised. But do you? Do you not just know the facts about Jesus? Like you're in Sunday school or something. Jesus healed. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus did lots of great things. No, are you counting on him? Are you counting on him? It's one thing to say Jesus is your savior, but look, church, at your hopes and expectations. Are you actually hoping for a salvation as big as the one Jesus promised? What if we did? What if we actually did? Can you imagine how different we would be? What would it look like for you to believe this? How would it impact your attitudes, your decisions, your thoughts? It's tempting, I know, to settle for half a Christian life, half hoping, half living for now. But don't settle. Church, don't settle. That is stealing your own joy. Put all your hopes in the kingdom of God, every single last one, because it's coming. It's coming. Jesus is the Savior you can count on. He's not just the son of Joseph. He is truly the Son of God. Let's pray. Spirit of God.
please speak to your people through your word. Of course, uh, Lord, that's who we want to hear you. And so, Lord, would you, even as we walk away from here, would you continue to preach this message until we are astonished by Jesus and until we actually stop living half Christian lives and put all of our hopes in you, Jesus, because you are a complete and total Savior. Please come back and come back soon. We pray this in your name. Amen.